first part of that song reminded me of my, my time with the Lord this morning. Did you feast with God this morning? So sometime during the day, did you, did you sit down and feast in the Word of God? Now, I don't know where you're feasting at this point in, with the Word of God, but right now I, I'm in 1 Samuel. I love 1 Samuel. Love 1 Samuel. Hannah's prayer, Hannah's song of victory when she gives Samuel back to, to God after he had given him to her. The, the next chapter over, you, you see old Samuel's just laying down, minding his own business. And he hears his name, and he gets up and runs to Eli. I didn't call you three times it happens. Fourth time he says, listen, just if, it's, if it happens again, just answer. This, this morning, though, as I was feasting the Word of God. Did y'all feast in the Word of God today? I, right before I was rudely interrupted, I don't know who it was, David had gone to visit his brothers on the front line. And he, he hadn't heard anything at all about this, this uncircumcised Philistine running his mouth. But he walks out in the middle of the parade grounds, and David sees him and hears him. And right before I was interrupted, I heard, who is this? So that's where I've got to pick up tomorrow. Did you feast in the Word of God today? I hope you did. Are you ready to feast in the Word of God tonight? Ronnie, help me here, brother. Are you ready to feast in the Word of God tonight? Okay. I have, I have, I have somewhat of a history with all the guys who are going to be uh, preaching this week. Didn't know Brad just like I didn't know Stephen until this, you know, this past September. And out of all the five of us who stayed in the same cabin, it was five. Yeah, five, five, five. Uh, yeah. Brad had the master suite of where we were staying. So we know he was the chosen favorite. <laughs> His room, you could have fit, I don't know, three or four people in there. And, and my, my room was about like that closet. But I'm not complaining. I, I know where I stand in all this situation. But Brad, Brad kind of brought order to, to the five of us because one of them was walking around with a machine that made bodily noises and thought it was funny. And Brad, Brad, I don't think, I mean, when, when he did this, and I'm not going to tell you who it was, but when he would use this machine that made bodily noises, Brad never smiled. He, he, I don't even think you act like you heard it. I know you heard it. I was just, myself, I was disgusted. <laughs> I just can't believe, can't believe. But Brad brought order to us and really enjoyed being with him and spending time with him. And I, I promise you, if, you, if you'll pay attention and you won't go to sleep, some of y'all just ate. You're going to hear a word from God tonight. Amen? Let's all give Brad a hand as he comes to the stage. I was being nice. The reason I got the big room is because I was the oldest. <laughs> uh, first thing I want to do is simply say, uh, when a man, I've been a pastor for a minute or two, when a man allows you to preach from his pulpit, he is offering you the absolute greatest honor that he could offer. And so, Kyle, I'm grateful for that. I appreciate that. Uh, no pastor takes, uh, every pastor takes seriously this, this place right here, this sacred desk. And so 
For Kyle to invite me to preach is a tremendous honor, and I'm grateful for it. And I've always said there are two kinds of people. Uh, one needs no introduction, and the other deserves no introduction. So you can decide which of those I am after the evening. We're in the middle, you are in the middle of what we call revival services. Revival. Where did that word come from? Why do we use it? What is it about? I mean, you began yesterday morning. Your services will go through Wednesday. I, 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 have, a, I have an interesting history when it comes to revival. Uh, in 1980, I was a student at Shorter College in the fall. I was, I was in my senior year there, and I was a history major. I, in fact, I have a double major in history and philosophy. I couldn't be anything other than a pastor. I'm not qualified to do anything else. Uh, those two degrees are, are not worth the piece of paper uh, they're, they're written upon. But I had a, I had a senior project that um, one of my professors guided me through. And I wrote the history of the little church where I was minister of music at the time, the Vans Valley Baptist Church in Rome, Georgia. In fact, they published it and used it for their homecoming the, the, the following year. But as I prepared for that project, as I wrote it, I kept coming, over, coming across this phrase that, that I didn't know anything about. I didn't understand it. Protracted meetings, they were called. Protracted meetings. There aren't many of you in this room older than I am, not much older anyway. So uh, even we didn't use that particular phrase. But a protracted meeting was a series of meetings that had a beginning. But most of the time, the church really didn't know how long that meeting might last. They knew they scheduled it from one Sunday morning to the following Sunday night. And most of the time they had services in the morning and in the evening, at least in this little church. And I learned in many of the, the Baptist churches, at least up in Northwest Georgia, they did. On at least one occasion, Vans Valley Baptist Church continued its protracted meeting for three consecutive weeks encouraging the guest pastor to stay with them. And so uh, that was a revival back in the early 1900s, perhaps even in the late 1800s. And then when, uh, prior to, to my doing that study, when I was still quite young, in fact, I was about 10 years of age, the little church where I grew up in Auburn, Georgia, which is outside of the town of Decula uh, in Gwinnett County, had a revival meeting. And on Thursday night of that revival meeting, I was 10, my sister was six. And my sister went forward on that Thursday night and put her trust in Christ. And I won't tell you how old she is. You can probably guess it based upon how old I am or approximately so. But my sister will look you directly in the eye and tell you she's never at one point in her life had a doubt that she was truly saved on that Thursday night. But what stands out to me is on Sunday night following the revival meeting, uh, and, and I, I learned that as a pastor, I didn't know this when I was a kid growing up, but what happened during that week of revival, the preacher didn't have time to prepare for both Sunday morning and Sunday night service, so they had testimony service on Sunday night. That's what we do when we're not ready to preach on Sunday night, we have testimony service. <laughs> One of our professional secrets out there. But we had testimony service, and I remember one deacon standing up and saying, you know, we had a good meeting this week, and I'm, I'm grateful, but I, I have to admit I'm a little disappointed. We only had one saved all week long. And I was sitting there not knowing what to do or what to say, and then my dad, who hardly ever spoke in church, stood up and said, I know we only had one, but she was mine. And, and so I, I, I just remember the, that particular time. And then when I became a pastor, we had uh, there was several different times. And I, I think maybe some associations and states still do it. Uh, we had what were called simultaneous revivals. 
and, and, and the simultaneous revival, sometimes in an association-wide, sometimes in a, an area, sometimes in a state, Southern Baptists would, would encourage large groups of people or, or large numbers of churches to have revivals at the same time. And it happened once when I was in Louisiana while I was still a student in New Orleans, and then it happened again when I was in Indiana uh, several years ago. One of the hardest things to do in both of those places was to find enough speakers for all of the churches, but uh, very often some of the larger churches and our associations would, would help with the finances so that the smaller churches could, could have those meetings. And I remember going to several different meetings at the association or different places where you walk in the door, you're getting ready for revival, and they give you a three-ring binding notebook and there'd be tabs in there and all this information and it talked about revival preparation and the things that you might do and, and, and there were so many of them some of them were were practical how to plan for your nursery how to make certain that people get fed every night as, as you did so well tonight and then some of them were talking about how to have prayer meetings uh, uh, in advance and, and the different things that would go along but I do remember one particular speaker on one of those occasions who stood, stood looking and said, generally speaking, what they encouraged you to do was the pastor to bring one or two lay persons from the church, and then they would go back and train their church. And this man stood up and said, if you will follow the instructions in this three-ring binder to the T, you will have revival. And I thought to myself, I don't know about that. I don't know that there is a simple recipe to revival. And, and in fact... It, it occurs to me, revival is a work of God. It is a supernatural event. It is something that we cannot do for ourselves, and we need to be reminded of that. And yet, obviously, we ought to prepare as best we can. We ought to pray in advance. We ought to make certain if, if we're looking to bring in young families, perhaps to have uh, some kind of child care, uh, to provide food and, and encourage There are things we can do to prepare but revival depends completely on the Lord. And so tonight, I, this is not a, quote, revival passage of Scripture. But it's a passage of Scripture in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. And it's a story of Jesus and two pretty big miracles. In fact, the first miracle is the only one that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. And the next miracle is recorded in three of the four, and it's always recorded immediately following this first one. And so we're going to begin reading in Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 30. And I'm going to read all the way through verse 52. The apostles returned to Jesus and told them all they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while, for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. 
And he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing, broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. They took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of the fish and those broken pieces and of the fish and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Immediately he made his disciples go and get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida. And while he dismissed the crowd and after, and after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. When evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land and he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the, city, on the sea, and he meant to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened." I want to give you the context to this passage of Scripture. In the beginning of Mark chapter 6, Jesus is preaching and teaching in his own hometown of Nazareth without a lot of results because, quite frankly, the people didn't trust him. And one of the strangest things that we're told of in the New Testament is that Jesus could, do not many, could not do many good works there because of their lack of faith and because of the way they dishonored him. And so then in verses 7 through 13, Jesus sent the 12 apostles out two by two, to go on a mission trip. They went preaching and teaching and healing. Now, verses 14 through 29 kind of interrupt the story. It's the story of John the Baptist's death. And what's happening here is Herod has heard about Jesus, and he's having flashbacks, quite frankly, about John the Baptist. And then, so all of a sudden now the story of John the Baptist is told in the middle of this of how he died. But from verse 13 into the verse of Scripture that I read, verse 30, actually is how, it, how the, the story flows. Because in verse 13, they cast out many demons, they anointed with oil many who were sick, and he healed them. And then in verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told them all they had done and taught. So now Jesus is beginning to, to work with them and, and, and look at them. And there are two miracles that take place one right after the other. The first is the feeding of the 5,000. Only you'll notice it says of 5,000 men. And the way they would have counted in that day, almost certainly there must have been fifteen to 18,000 people there because only the grown men would have been counted. And from that story, by the way, that, that is the only miracle in the New Testament that is found in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then immediately after that, in both in, in Matthew, Mark, and John, not in Luke, but Matthew, Mark, and John, we then have the story of Jesus walking on the water to his disciples. And John gives us information about both of these stories. John is the one who tells us that uh, there was a little boy there with his lunch, and that's the one who, uh, from whom they got the food. John's also the one who tells us that after Jesus had started out on walking on the water, Peter asked permission to come on the wall and then walk on the water as well. You might wonder, why am I preaching from this text today? Well, what, is, what has this got to do with revival? 
Well, I, I said to you earlier, we've talked about revival. I talked about the simultaneous meetings and how uh, we would prepare and do the things that we would do. And I, I've got to imagine that your pastor has probably been preaching on and talking about and promoting this series of meetings for some time now. You've been praying about it. Perhaps you've invited someone to come and be here, friends, someone to come and be a part of it. But the bottom line for us is simply this. If revival is going to happen, God has to give it. It has to come from the Lord. And, and I've entitled this message today, What Can't He Do? Talking about Jesus. What can't he do? And I want us to see some lessons from these two miracle stories about Jesus. I want us to see what Jesus did then, and I want us to remind ourselves, because I think sometimes we forget, the Jesus of the first century is still alive and well in the 21st century. Thank you. And I want us to understand that, and I want us to see. And so there are lessons about Jesus from these miracles, and the first lesson I see is Jesus' concern for his own children. Jesus' concern for his own children. In verses 30 to 33, the apostles come back to Jesus. And in the end of verse 30, Jesus says, Come away by yourselves. In the end of verse 31, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. Again, I remind you, the disciples have just come back from this mission trip. They report to Jesus all that they have been doing and seeing. And Jesus says, Okay. I want you to come away with me to this, this desolate place. But first, let, let's talk about this. They, they come. It, Mark just writes, they reported to Jesus all that they did and saw. I don't think Mark captures for us the excitement of the disciples. Think about a middle school boy who gets an A-plus on a math test. He hadn't gotten an A in a minute, Okay. And he comes home, Mom, Dad, I made an A. Or about two months ago, my granddaughter called, Papa, I made the volleyball team. And she went on about how excited she was to make the volleyball team, uh, the junior varsity team at Glen Academy. She was excited about that possibility. That's what the disciples are here. Jesus, you can't believe what we did. You can't believe what took place. But then Jesus says, I want you to go away with me to a desolate place and rest. He was concerned for them. Many of you know this. I know Brother Kyle knows it. I know Brother Stephen knows it. Other, Tyler understands. And I'm not looking for pity when I say what I'm about to say. Ministry's hard. And preaching, as much as I love to do it, drains me. After I preach on Sunday morning, I, I've always gone home and rested. But I'm at an age now where I do more than rest. I sit in front of the television and turn on the Falcon game, and I almost inevitably miss the second quarter. I wake up and it's halftime. Because quite frankly, preaching is a physical and spiritual and mental exercise that drains me. Again, I'm not complaining. I love it. But it is exhausting. And these disciples came to Jesus. They were excited, but Jesus understood something. They were about to crash. 
So he takes them to this desolate place. He says, let's get away from it all. You know, I, I can remember, I have for many, many years in my preaching, especially on Sunday mornings, I preach through Bible books most of the time. Uh, I have a theological belief that that's a good way to do it, but it's even more, more than that. At the age of 23, when I became a pastor, I was still a seminary student. I'm pastoring a church 45 miles outside of New Orleans, and I preach on Sunday morning, I'd preach on Sunday night, and I'd wake up on Monday morning, and the first thought that would hit me is, oh my heavens, I've got to do that again next week. Because I just didn't know where to go. And I finally determined, you know what the best thing to do is go through a Bible book and you can figure out where you're going to be. You don't have to, you don't have to worry about what you're going to preach, uh, at, at least that way. And, and so uh, in this particular passage of Scripture, the, the disciples are, are getting away from that. And they're, they're getting away from what they've just done. Jesus calls them to get away. He is concerned for his own. But then Jesus is also compassionate about the crowds. In verse 34, we read, when he went ashore, he saw the crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus had compassion. You know, these TV commercials that have recently come out, he gets us. You know, I've heard some criticism about them. I, I really don't even know the source. I've tried to find out, but I do know this. I'm watching a playoff baseball game about three weeks ago on TBS, no less. And a commercial comes in and it starts talking about Jesus. And there's a part of me that says, well, that can't be all bad. I don't know the theology of the people who are putting on there, but, but they're at least introducing the Lord to somebody. And, and they're talking about him. And in this passage of Scripture, you know, we have Christians that come from this perspective and that perspective. And we disagree with each other on a lot of different things. But one thing I know for sure, all Christians will agree with this, I'm convinced. Jesus never turned anyone away who came to him with a sincere heart. Now, Jesus did turn a couple of folks away. I think of a rich young ruler as one. Or... Maybe Jesus didn't turn him away as much as the man turned away and, and, and went away, and Jesus didn't pursue him. I'll put it that way. And I've joked with people through the years, if that man had been at a Baptist church and the preacher had said, you know, you go ahead and the man had turned away, the deacons would have chased him down. Wait a minute, how much money do you have again? <laughs> and there might have been a deacons meeting right after service. I don't know. But anyway. Jesus did let that man go. But when someone came to him sincerely, Jesus didn't turn them away. And, and the people came, and in verse 34, uh, he, he has compassion on them. At the end of it, he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples, hey, Lord, you gotta, you got to feed them. We've got to send them away. You, it, we've already seen it's a desolate place. Okay, there's not Burger Kings and McDonald's around the corner. There, there's no place to eat whatsoever. And send them away. And Jesus said, well, you feed them. Don't you just know that Peter and Philip got tired of that kind of thing from Jesus? Let's feed them. The, the number of denarii that are mentioned here, it's eight months' salary for a working man. Eight months' salary for a working man for them to feed this large crowd. Lord, we don't have that kind of food. The disciples were, were inundated by the crowds. They were surrounded by the crowds, and they didn't know what to do. But Jesus looked at them and had compassion on them because they looked like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, Jesus is concerned for his own, but he has compassion for everybody. I want you to see this now. Look at Jesus' 
capability to provide. In verses 38 through 44, Jesus feeds the people. It's ironic. I did not know until a couple of days ago that you were going to have food right before. But, and, and right over, my wife asked, she said, is it just going to be us? Or are they going to cook in the kitchen? I said, I have no idea. We get here and it's a Baptist feast. And, and, I, and I'm very grateful. You know, I, I love being a Baptist on, on fellowship nights. Uh, but I say this, and, and it's in a joking fashion, but it's, it's real too. I've never seen a Baptist church run out of food. Ever. But I got to tell you a story. I was pastor of the Warren Woods Baptist Church in Warren, Michigan, a suburb of Detroit. If you know about M&M and 8 Mile, our church was located on 12 Mile Road. So that's, we were four miles from where M&M grew up. And tradition was quite different at that church from the way it is in, in most southern churches when it came time for a funeral. And I'm not talking about for the church. This was the community. This was the way they did it in that part of Michigan. If you had a family member to die, you were expected to provide a meal for everyone who came to the funeral. That was, that was a part of the expense of a funeral, okay? And there were banquet halls all around metropolitan Detroit, 15 to $18 a plate that you would feed the folks who came to your family's funeral. Well, our church said, no, that's not the way we're going to do it. By the way, they did that before I got there, so this is not something I take credit for. No, we're not going to do it that way. When a church member had a family member to pass and that, that funeral was either at our church or near our church, our ladies went to the church and they cooked. It was not a pitch-in dinner. They cooked. It was always ham, potatoes au gratin, green beans, a salad, and then we did have folks bring in desserts. They did it every time. Well, it was the preacher's job. Tell us, get with the family, how many folks are coming. I always did that. If I told Miss Patsy 50 should prepare for 75. Y'all know, know how that goes. You, 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 have, you never want to run out of food. This family said 65 to 70. So Miss Patsy prepared for about 95 people. I quit counting at 120. And there were people still waiting in line. Patsy came to me three different times. Preacher, you better be praying. I, I said, Patsy, I've been praying long before you knew we needed to pray. <laughs> I said, I saw, I saw when you went out of the sanctuary, if you turned right, you went to the parking lot. If you turned left, you went into the, so, towards the social hall. And I kept watching people turn left. I'm going, uh-oh. They did not cook any extra. We had food left over. You know the old Christmas song, As For Me and Grandpa, We Believe? That particular day, As For Me and Patsy, We Believed. We believe without a doubt that God multiplied that food. She said, she looked at me and she said, I did not buy enough ham for 145 people. She said, I did not. But, but I, I've seen God provide in that way. And in this story, Jesus does that in, in that way. Five pieces of bread and two fish. Our, our modern liberal interpreters of the Bible have often tried to claim, well, what the miracle was when everyone saw the little boy sharing their lunch, everyone found their food and began to share. Mm. There's a Greek word for that. It's called baloney. <laughs> nonsense. It's ridiculous. The miracle was that Jesus took five rolls and two fish and set up an all-you-can-eat fish and hush puppies buffet. 
and there were 12 baskets left over. You know why there were 12. There were 12 ornery disciples who needed to learn a lesson, and they each one took food home. Jesus has the capability to provide. And that point for you and me is this. I said a moment ago, we can't work up revival, but Jesus can. He can give revival. He can grant it to us. He can make an impact on our lives. Jesus is able to do more. He is powerful. He provided more than was needed. But here's a question for you. How did he do that? I want you to notice his connection to power. Beginning in verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida. While he dismissed the crowd, and after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Why is Jesus able to feed 5,000 men and their family with a small boy's lunch? Well, you know, the first answer to that is, well, he's God. He's God in the flesh. And if, if somebody looks at you and says, well, you know, the New Testament isn't explicit about that, tell him, yes, it is. John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And I don't care how many people come to your doorstep two by two. Now I think they're phoning more than they're coming to our homes. But I, I don't care. Back on? There we go. There we go. It doesn't matter if that... Every good Greek scholar will tell you very clearly that when he says in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, that it's clearly God with a capital G. No doubt about it. In addition to that, if you have other trouble about it, Paul wrote to Titus where he spoke of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And let's not forget that Jesus himself said to a group of religious men before Abraham was, I am. And if, if some scholars today don't know what Jesus meant, the people listening to him that day did. He was saying, I am God. I am truly the Lord. But even as God, I want you to see verse 46. After he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. There's the secret to everything Jesus accomplished and did. He prayed. When you consider that 12 men followed Jesus around for three years, and not just those 12 men, folks, there were other folks that followed him around, Mary and Martha and another Mary and Salome and so many, so many others that followed Jesus around. They saw Jesus do so many things. They listened to him preach. But you know, Peter, Matthew, Thomas, none of those guys ever looked at Jesus and said, Lord, would you teach us how to be better teachers? Not one of them said, Lord, would you teach us how to preach the way you preach? They didn't even say, Jesus, would you teach us how to perform miracles? But there's a record in the Gospels where the disciples looked at Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. I have to admit something to you. I think the weakest part of my Christian life, not just my pastoral ministry, is my prayer life. 
And when I say that to you, I'm not confessing to you that I never pray. I'm just saying that I'm dissatisfied at times with my prayer. I want to pray more than I did and more than I do. <laughs> I learned how to pray from a college roommate. I watched him every night the first two or three weeks I was at Shorter College go and, 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 and put himself face down across his bed with his Bible open in front of him, and I watched him just pour out his heart to God and pray. And so I thought, well, I'm going to do that. I watched him lay there for 20 or 30 minutes, and I could tell from his lips were moving, and I could hear he wasn't asleep, okay? He didn't fall asleep. And so that, that first night I committed, I'm going to pray. And I, I, I prayed for everything and everybody I knew about. When I looked at the clock, I'd been praying about two minutes. That's all. And I thought to myself, and I was tired. It's exhausting. But I've learned something about praying. You know, I walk on a regular basis. I, I, I've got a bike. I either ride my bike or I walk six days a week, uh, trying my best to keep cholesterol down and blood pressure down and a few other things down and just try to maintain my health, maybe, maybe to live a little bit longer. This much I know. If I miss two weeks of, of exercise because of an illness or a knee getting replaced a few years back, it takes me several weeks to get back into shape. I remember back from when I was playing high school basketball. You know, at one point in time, early in the regular season, I could have run five to ten miles without breathing very hard because our assistant coach made us run and run and run and run and run. And then after we got through, we ran some more. You know, it's just the way it was. And then I got the croupy cough and missed about four days of practice. When I came back after practice, I hurt like I hadn't run in my entire life. I think our prayer muscles sometimes fall out of favor in the same way. We have to exercise our prayer muscles. Jesus prayed, and that was his connection to power. That's where he got his power. That's what he did. And folks, we've got to, to learn to pray <laughs> a whole lot more than you know, we, we've all been in a church where there's been a dispute or an argument and they're in a, the, the deacons and pastors, pastor were talking and the, the pastor at the end of an exasperating session finally said, guys, we need to pray. One of the deacons looked at him and said, pastor, has it really come to that? Is it that bad? Well, it's always that bad. We, we need to pray. Jesus had a connection to power. But I want you to see one more thing. Jesus had control over all of life, over everything. Verse 47 and following, Jesus, he's through praying now. When evening came, the boat's out on the sea. He was alone on the land. He saw they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Now, I want you to notice something. Earlier in the book of Mark, there's a story about Jesus being asleep in the boat and the disciples being in a storm that was so desperately powerful that it scared them to death. Finally, one of them worked up the nerve and woke Jesus up. He stood up and said, peace be still. This doesn't seem to be that kind of storm. It's just that the wind was against him and they were making headway painfully, it says. So, the, you know, sailboating, uh, I don't know how they do it, but somehow in a sailboat they're able to work things so that they can even move into the wind a little bit. But these disciples are rowing and they're working. And the wind is against them. <laughs> Jesus comes walking out across the water. Just walk, and again, I've heard these liberal scholars make the statement, well, this was the shallow part of the lake, or here's my favorite one I've ever heard. The miracle was that Jesus knew where all the stumps were. 
I read that in a book, folks. I could not, I'm not smart enough to have made it up. I wonder if they were cypress knees, you know. <laughs> it's, that's, it's just ridiculous. No, the Bible tells us that Jesus is walking on the surface of water. And he's walking faster than the boat is going. And the disciples look at him and think, well, there's a ghost. And they're scared. But all of a sudden they recognize him. He says, it's me. And again, from John's gospel, we know that Peter said, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come out here. <laughs> it just occurs to me that had it been a ghost, the ghost might have told Peter to come. But somehow Peter understood and recognized Jesus' voice. And he stepped out of the boat. He took a couple of steps. And here's where we're so critical of Peter. Peter lost his faith and he began to sink. Peter's the only one who got out of the boat. And he starts making his way. The, the point of this miracle is that Jesus has power over everything. He's already fed 5,000 people with a small sack lunch. And now he's walking across the surface of the water just like I'm walking across this stage, only probably much faster. And he goes and crawls into the boat with the guys and the wind dies down. They make their way across. Jesus is in control of everything they see and everything they do. And that's a reminder that Jesus is in control of revival. You know, I entitled the message, What Can't He Do? What can't he do? And the answer to that is, is nothing. But we think about it. What does revival mean for Chevis Oaks Baptist Church? By this point tonight, you're more than halfway through your meetings. But I pray you're not halfway through revival. I pray that God's going to work in your hearts and in your lives. You know, we long for revival. I've been a pastor now, just past the, the, earlier this month, 41 years ago, I became a pastor. On October the 3rd, 1982, the, the Evans Creek Baptist Church in Pearl River, Louisiana, partially I think they, they lost their minds and they called a 23-year-old kid to be their pastor. And I'm looking out at people that have been studying the Bible long before I was, before my mom and dad were born, much less before I was born. In those 41 years, I've experienced revival. Not 41 consecutive years of it, but I've experienced revival. I've seen God move. And it's powerful, and it's real, and it's marvelous, and it's wonderful when God begins to work. I, I want to see it again. I, I believe that you do too. And I want you to know Jesus is able to send revival. The one who multiplied the little boy's lunch to feed thousands. The one who walked across the sea. He's able. But I wonder, what's he waiting for? I read this quote several months ago. And I printed it out and I saved it for, for just an occasion such as this. I might read it twice just to make certain it sinks in. Don't know who wrote it. Don't know where it's from. If all the sleeping folks will wake up and the lukewarm folks will fire up, if the dishonest folks will own up and the discouraged folks will cheer up, if the quarrelsome will make up and the gossipers will shut up, if the depressed people will look up and the cowardly will speak up, then it may, be, it may well be that God will truly show up. Can I read that again? The sleeping folks will wake up, 
The lukewarm folks will fire up. The dishonest folk will own up. The discouraged folks will cheer up. The quarrelsome will make up. The gossipers shut up. That one got a reaction from you, I know. If the depressed folks will look up and the cowardly will speak up, it may well be that God will truly show up. Wouldn't that be grand? Wouldn't you like it for God to really show up? We're, we're already here. We want him to show us what to do next. Just a moment, your musicians will come. Your pastor is going to stand up front. I want you to listen to what God has to say to you. A lot of times we think that this invitation time, this time of, 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 of commitment, whatever we might want to call it, we, we sometimes think, well, that's just for folks to walk down forward to join the church. Or, No, this is a time for God to speak and for us to listen. And, and I'm utterly convinced of something. It's not that God's not speaking. It's that we're not listening. We're not listening. It's funny, and yet it's not so funny. About a year ago, my wife and I attended a pastor's and spouse retreat in Jekyll Island. We had both been accusing each other for about six months to a year of, of having bad hearing. And quite frankly, I had more ammunition than she did because both of her parents wore hearing aids near the end of their lives, and neither of my parents did, although her parents lived significantly longer than mine did. But we were both saying that. We, we went to the hearing test. Turns out that my hearing is, the guy said, perfect. And Tina's hearing, he said, is better than some dogs. <laughs> she could hear sounds that no one else could hear. By the way, that, that's, that's, not a, that's not a shot at her. It, it, she has good hearing. So the question remains, well, why don't we hear each other? <laughs> Pretty obvious, we ain't listening. Pretty obvious. Probably me so more than her. But God's speaking right now. And the only reason that we don't hear it is because we're not listening. We're not paying attention. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ and he's speaking to your heart right now, your pastor wants to show you what it means to follow Jesus. He wants to open the Bible and tell you how you can do that. If you're already a believer, but you want to walk more closely to the Lord, you might share that with your pastor. You might kneel right here at these steps. I, I don't refer to them as an altar because I know that the altar is the place the animals were sacrificed. I, I get that. And so the, right here at the front of this, this Baptist church here, you can kneel before the Lord. If your knees won't allow you to kneel, you can sit right here on the front row and you can pray. It may be that the Lord's calling you to become a part of this church family. Maybe, maybe this is already your church, but you've not officially joined. It may be that, quite frankly, you're not certain what God is saying. You see, when I say God will speak, you may not understand it at first, just like the story you begin telling about Samuel. Little Samuel didn't understand it at first. But when Eli helped him out, he was able to hear. And sometimes your pastor can help. You know, my wife and I have a 15-month-old granddaughter, and she's starting to talk. I have no idea what she's saying. Not yet. But we're trying to listen. We're trying to hear. God will speak. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. Your pastor's going to come stand here. The musicians are going to come. I, I take it for granted someone's going to come and play or sing. And you'll have the opportunity to respond to God's call. I cannot possibly know how God is speaking to every person in this room. But I'm utterly convinced of something. If you'll listen, 
He'll make it clear to you. When I was 17 years old, God began to deal with me to call me into ministry. I wanted to do anything else but. I had my mindset I was going to go to college. I was going to get a math degree and a teaching degree, and I was going to coach basketball. And I kept arguing with God, God, you've heard what my coach and other coaches I play against, you've heard their language. God, we need Christian coaches. That's a good argument, don't you think? But God said, that's fine. I'll call some Christian coaches. But I'm calling you to be a pastor. The problem was there for a while, though, I just didn't understand how. And I was fortunate that I had two or three people say, this is what you do. This is how God will speak. And that's why we offer a public invitation. It may be that your pastor can clarify or help you understand what God is saying to you. It may be that a public time of prayer will help you clarify and understand what God is saying to you. Quite frankly, I'll give permission where I've not, even, where I've not been given permission. But if you know a deacon or a Sunday school teacher or another person in this church who's here tonight that can help you, I just don't believe that a godly Christian leader would look at you and say, no, I can't help you right now. You just walk across to someone and say, can you pray with me right now? I'm asking you and encouraging you and challenging you. Listen to the Lord. He is speaking. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you. You've been so good to us. And Lord, we know as we look into the Bible and look into history that revival can only come from you. But Lord, you're able, and there is nothing that you can't do. And so we trust you, and we pray that you'll work in our hearts and our lives right now. I pray for every person in this room. Lord, help us to hear you and say yes to you right now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.